Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Podcast. We're so glad that you've joined us today. We confess that we don't have all the answers, but as a community, we seek to find and follow Jesus and to discover daily the life he has always wanted for us. We hope this message will be encouraging and will inspire you to take the next steps on your spiritual journey. If we can help you in any way, please connect with us. The easiest way is through our website at ericksoncovenant.ca. Let's get started. Well, I was recently at, uh, for coffee at Roe when we were up at a leadership retreat, so in Ryandell, having coffee uh, with my friend Daryl, Daryl Aguire. He's uh, part of the crew up there, and uh, he was telling me a great story. So years ago, he and his wife ran one of the resorts up the lake closer to Great Creek, and he was in at the Great Creek store one day, and in comes a whole bunch of Germans. They were dusty. They were cranky. Anyone German here today? Um, they had just been through a harrowing experience. They were pulling RVs, uh, and uh, some of them had cars, and they looked like they'd just gone through a war zone because this was a while back now. This was probably 20, 25 years ago, but what had happened was this. Someone along the way, maybe it was a map that was printed in Germany by people who didn't know the area. Maybe it was some awful person in, you know, Radium Hot Springs. (laughs) But they had heard this information had been given to them. Oh, you don't want to go through Creston. There's a better way to get to the ferry. It's called the Great Creek Pass. In fact... It's a better road (laughs) than the one through Creston. So whether it was a map they were following or the ill-advised from some awful person, they went up through the Great Creek Pass and discovered that it was not a better road. It was a, a, there was huge holes in it. There was stuff. There was, it was dusty. It was crazy. And they're bumping their way through wondering when's the road going to get better. If this is the better road, why are we ever glad we didn't go through Creston, right? (laughs) So then they show up. Finally, they did make it through because they're German and they made it through and, (laughs) and they got to Gray Creek only to find out that, well, actually it's paved all the way through Creston. Somebody sold you a bill of goods. Somebody told you it was a shortcut when, in fact, it was not. Have you ever had a bad shortcut? Have you you ever been told, this is a shortcut you should take, and you realized about a quarter of the way down, this is not the shortcut I should have taken? Sometimes the promise of a shortcut is just wrong. And our dear German tourists found that out. It'll lead you to places you don't want to be, places that you may never even get out of. Jesus, in the second of the temptation stories, as Luke gives them to us, faces this promise, a promise of a kind of shortcut that's actually posed by the devil himself. But when you think about it, we often get promises of shortcuts. In fact, We're surrounded by them. Shortcuts to the type of relationship that you want. Shortcuts to the type of body that you want. Shortcuts to the bank account you want. Shortcuts to the freedom you want. There's a whole industry out there that is poised to sell you a life hack. Did you know that? Yeah. Fancy shortcuts make your life easier, faster, more efficient. And I don't deny some of them are really great. You know, 15 years ago, I watched a three-minute TED Talk on how to tie your shoes changed my life. You laugh. But when I'm prancing down the mountain next to my runner buddies whose shoes are continuing to come untied and mine are not, I say to them, got a life hack for you. (laughs) And I send them the link to the TED talk on how to tie your shoes because I'll guarantee you most of you are tying your shoes wrong. But that's a side point. A lot of the promise shortcuts that we receive, of course, are just flat out lies. Now, they're either just simply false or more likely they soft sell the truth to us. They suggest that significant lasting change can come to our lives with very little effort. 
rather than the truth, which is, of course, that any kind of significant lasting change will take consistent intentional discipline over often a long period of time. If you want a better marriage, friends, get ready to do some work. Right? You got to be willing to put in some serious work. I want to know who said that. Um, you can, yeah. If you want to have a better marriage, you got to be willing to put in some serious work on yourself, not on your spouse, please. Don't do that. Don't say yes. Don't say, honey, I've realized that in order to get our marriage work, to work, we've got to do some more work on you. That will not work. You got, that's, that's just for free. There you go. Uh, no, that if you want to have a better marriage, you've got to do the work. And you've got to do the work on yourself. And the effects of that work will actually take a while to bring effect in your marriage. There's no shortcuts to a better marriage. If you want to have a healthier body, well, actually, there's steps you can take today. This afternoon, in fact. But guess what? Tomorrow, you're going to take some more steps. And then the next day, and then the next day, and the next day, because the reality is there's no shortcuts to a healthier body. There's no shortcuts to just good habits of eating and exercise. If you actually want to finally get out of debt and live with more financial wisdom, are there any shortcuts for that? Well, actually, there are some rapid ways you can pay down debt and make some radical changes to foolish spending, but there's no shortcut actually to getting your mind right to rooting your action in a biblical worldview and some common sense financial wisdom and letting the spirit lead you into greater financial integrity. There's no shortcuts to that. Name an area that you want to see significant change, an important area in your life. And I assure you, there's someone waiting at the trailhead to sell you a shortcut, promising that you can get where you want to go. No time flat, few easy steps, no problem, right? Run the other way. That's what I say. Run the other way. Perhaps some of the biggest lies for sale to anybody who is a follower of Jesus is actually shortcuts that are being offered to the very things that God has already given to us or already promised to us. A life of forgiveness and freedom, a life of no condemnation or experiencing a worry-free life of peace or, or promising to work his will in us according to what he's already said in his word or carrying out through us in this world and carrying us the burdens that we have or holding us safe within his love, no matter what comes. The the fact that he's actually able to take all the stuff in our lives and work it out for good. These are all promises that God has already guaranteed to us. But right alongside every one of those promises, there's a marketer who's itching to sell you a shortcut. There's an author who's written a book to offer you 10 easy steps, or hear me clearly, there's a preacher who is promising you easy gains. And this shouldn't surprise us at all. But it should make us a little more wary of the things that we hear. If we hear a shortcut to the kind of life that you know you want, that you know, in fact, that God intends for you in Christ, I invite you just to slow down for a moment and consider what's being offered, because as you will probably discover, the devil is in the details, quite literally. And that's what Jesus found out in the second of his temptations. Watch as we dig into this today, how the devil tempts Jesus with a shortcut, a shortcut to glory, a shortcut to the promise that the father has already given to him. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into Luke chapter four. Lord Jesus, we look today to you particularly this experience that you had of being tempted by the devil to take a shortcut. Would you open up our hearts and minds to receive your word today, your example, your leadership. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. We're in Luke chapter 4. We're into the second of the temptations. I already mentioned that. Jesus had been fasting for 40 days. He was hungry. He was at the moment of great exhaustion when the devil shows up and tempts him. In the first temptation, it was a temptation to self-sufficiency. Really challenging Jesus to use his identity as the son of God to provide for himself. And the question was, would he use his own word to sustain himself 
telling that stone to become a piece of bread? Or would he rely on the Father's word, the word of God to sustain him? While Jesus rejects this temptation to self-sufficiency, not only by denying the devil his, even his attempt, but in the very way that he rejects the devil's offer, that Jesus spoke back to the devil, not even with his own word, but with the word of God. Well, here's temptation two, Luke chapter four, verses five to eight. I encourage you to look it up in one of those paper Bibles or on your phone or online but I encourage you to follow along. Verse five, the devil led him, that's Jesus, led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Well, like the first temptation, there's a lot of backstory echoes that we need to hear in order to really receive this story. So let's pull it apart a little bit, try to understand what's going on. The first thing I want you to notice is how the devil takes Jesus up to a high place and gives him a vision of all the kingdoms of the world. Some scholars think that this is an allusion to Moses himself when God took him up on Mount Nebo right before he died. It's chronicled in Deuteronomy chapter 34. And up on Mount Nebo, Moses is shown the whole promised land of Canaan. It's laid out before him. The land that God had promised to his people and Moses had worked his whole life to lead God's people into, into that land. God shows it to him. And in this second temptation of Jesus, it's like the devil positions himself now as Yahweh, as God, taking Jesus up to this high place and showing him the promised land. But not just the promised land. In this case, all the kingdoms of the world in some sort of global domination vision. But there's more. If you read the story of God's people as it's chronicled to us in First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, uh, First and Second Samuel, all those uh, good historical books there, um, you will have noticed, if you've read along, that the, uh, there's a, a, a theme, I guess you could say, of high places. High places were very popular pagan worship sites. And whenever God's people fell away from Yahweh and into idolatry, forsaking Yahweh, worshiping false gods, high places would be built, would be used. When good judges or good kings came along, sometimes those high places would be torn down and desecrated. And then another evil king would come along or the people would revolt and high places would be rebuilt. But these high places were places where the awful, bloodthirsty sex gods of the ancient Near East would be worshipped up in a high place. Other places too, but high places were really popular. So isn't it interesting that it's up on a high place that the devil not only makes his offer to Jesus, but then tries to coax Jesus to worship him to get it. To those who are familiar with the ancient biblical stories, there would just be alarm bells going off at the first sentence here. Well, before we even get to the whole false worship that the, that the devil asks for, uh, let's look at the promise he makes. He says, I'll give you all the kingdoms and splendor, all the authority and splendor of all the kingdoms of the world. Uh, it's quite an offer, isn't it? I mean, think about that. It's like he just sidles up to Jesus. Jesus, just, just, let's just look at it all. Look at that. Just imagine yourself as the king. Drink it all in. The world is your oyster and all the glory and all the fame and all the splendor and all the riches, all the power, all of it, all of it yours. The devil is offering Jesus all the kingdoms of the world on a silver platter. 
And here's where we begin to see the disastrous shortcut the devil is really offering. You see, if you understand the promises, all the promises the father had already given to his son, covenant promises that had been detailed out all through the prophets, through the word of God given about the Messiah, about this king who would come from the line of David and rule all the kingdoms of the world, you'd realize that all the kingdoms of the world had already been promised to Jesus by his father. In fact, remember when we looked at the father's words during the baptism scene of Jesus? And how the father deliberately echoed that coronation psalm, Psalm 2. Remember that? At the baptism of Jesus, we hear the father say, you are my son, whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. And we noted how this little phrase, you are my son, is a deliberate echo from Psalm 2. It echoes other passages as well, but Psalm 2 is what it primarily pulls from. And when you read Psalm 2 and you remember that it was used when kings were crowned, you realize Psalm 2 contains a very powerful promise about the kingdoms of the world. And you really need to hear it. So let me just read part of Psalm 2. I'll just read verses 6 to 8. God is scoffing at the nations who are attempting to overthrow Uh, the rightful anointed king that God has already chosen and already installed. And so the one who sits enthroned in heaven laughs. And this is what he says. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. That's verse six. Then we hear the king respond. Verse seven. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, and now he's quoting God. He said to me, you are my son, Today, I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Did you get that last bit? You are my son. Today, I become your father. Ask me, and I will give the nations your inheritance. I will make the nations your inheritance. This is a messianic kingly psalm that is pointing straight to Jesus. And at his baptism, the father evokes this song as a sign that this man going down in the water on whom the dove is descending, this man is the beloved son. He is the chosen king in, in the Davidic line. He's the one that was spoken of and pointed to all through the prophets, but particularly here in Psalm 2. And what we hear is that the son of God is told that he has only to ask the father and the father will make the nations his inheritance the ends of the earth, his possession. In other words, at the baptism of Jesus, the father not only affirms his relationship with his son, but the promise he's made that all the kingdoms of the world would be his inheritance. This is so important for us to understand because what we have here from the devil is a temptation to get the very thing that Jesus had already been promised by his father. Do you see that? And why would that be a temptation at all then? Like, what? Why would that even be enticing? And here's where it gets dramatic. Why is this tempting? Because the devil is offering Jesus a shortcut to glory that would bypass the cross. This is critical. The devil is offering Jesus the kingdoms of the world now without the road of suffering that the father has chosen for him and knows he must walk. A pathway to the throne without the road of crucifixion. The father sent the son to earth to restore the kingdoms of this earth to his possession. And the only way The only way that can happen is if the son comes and takes our place, shoulders our load, becomes the perfect faithful human, the perfect faithful Israelite. We've explored some of these things in the last few weeks. Jesus has to step into place to overcome death and sin and evil, to go through the cross in order to break the back of evil and death. It's the only way forward, but the pathway is a hard one. And the devil's essentially saying, Jesus, hey, come over here. I'll offer you a great shortcut. Let me give you the kingdom God promised to you now without all that blood and gore stuff, you know? And we know this is actually a real temptation 
Now, Jesus shuts the devil down, but we know later in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus pleads with his father for another way. Do we remember that? Luke 22, 42. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And then we're told an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. That's Jesus in the garden later, right before his crucifixion. Make no mistake about it. This is a real temptation. If there was another way, Jesus wanted to know what it was. Now, he's not going to dally around with the devil about it, but he asks his father. The road of suffering ahead for Jesus was absolutely terrifying for him. And the devil here is offering him a shortcut. And yet Jesus knows the truth. He knows that the only path to glory, the only way the world will be restored to the Father, he, he knows it. He knows it'll come through suffering. And as we see, as he moves forward in the Gospel of Luke, and we're reading it, we're taking this master class through Luke, Jesus is going to sit down with his disciples. And Luke chronicles three different times, I think Matthew does too, I think Mark does too, in fact, three different times where Jesus sits them down and tells them exactly what's going to happen to him. They're coming to believe he's the Messiah, in fact, at that crucial point where, you know, who, who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? You're God's Messiah. It's right at that point that Jesus goes, okay, let me explain what Messiah means. The Messiah is going to suffer. The Messiah is going to be mocked. The Messiah is going to be beat. The Messiah is going to be killed and hung upon a cross. And, and the disciples could not grasp that. They could not understand that. But Jesus knew that was the only way forward. The only way to deal with death was to die. And he was going to take that unto himself. Jesus knew the only way into the Father's inheritance, the only way the world would be redeemed was through terrible suffering, and he was going to bear it. And he knew that was the story. Remember how at the end of the story of Luke, Luke chapter 24, after Jesus had risen from the dead, and he's walking along the road with a couple of confused disciples who'd heard rumors that Jesus was risen, but didn't compute for them yet? Remember? Remember Jesus' words to them after hearing them talk and all that? Luke 24, 25, or sorry, yeah, 24, 25. He says, um, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus knew the story. He knew where this was heading And as tempting as the shortcut was, Jesus knew that his suffering was the only way to glory, the only way to his glory, the only way to ours. Of course, this story does make you wonder, I know some of you wonder, did the devil actually have the right to offer that? You mean, he makes a big claim here. He claims it's all his and he can give it to anybody he wants. But then again, you think, yeah, but but he's a liar, You can't trust the word the guy says. See, you're wondering, what's true here? And here's what's interesting. Jesus doesn't even quibble with him at that point. He just simply rejects out of hand the means to the promise. I think that's something significant here. It's significant. As, As significant as this temptation to shortcut around suffering is, the devil is a fool to even try to get Jesus to worship him. The devil says, if you worship me, it will all be yours. He's not subtle at all. He forgot who he was dealing with, didn't he? His arrogance got the better of him. You know, he takes Jesus up to a high place, strike one. (laughs) And then, well, maybe strike one's just being him. But, you know, strike two then. He takes him up to a high place. Echoes the deadly idolatry of God's people. He mimics Yahweh's time with Moses. And then he tries to steal the father's already given promise to him. It's like, duh, at that point. What are you trying to do here? And then to top it all off, the devil has the audacity to invite the son of God to worship someone other than his father, breaking the first and primary command of the whole of scripture. I mean, seriously, as much of a temptation as this might have been, are you stupid? That's the question that should come to you at this point. What were you thinking? And that's when he sunk, right? Because just like in the first temptation, Jesus doesn't even get into it with the devil. 
He doesn't even get into the details. He doesn't push back against this, the devil's claim to have this power. He doesn't say, yeah, but my father already promised me that. He just shuts him down and teaches us something critical here for us who are his apprentices. When he refuses to engage the devil in any kind of conversation at all, any kind of dialogue, any kind of back and forth that might be misconstrued as some kind of negotiation. Again, we remember a previous episode where people engaged in a conversation with something like this. Snake, garden, you know. Jesus won't even engage. He simply reaches again for the word of God the word of God that we know already sustains him, and he uses the Father's word to crush the devil's offer. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Once again, Jesus is reaching. Jesus, his Bible memory has served him well. In the first temptation, he reached for Deuteronomy 8, right? Well, this time he reaches a little further back to Deuteronomy 6, from the most classic of passages, the one that Crystal read for us. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And a little further down, fear the Lord your God or worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus knows that the road ahead of him is terrifying. But he knows even more that the Father's way is trustworthy. And he's going to continue to be faithful. He's going to continue to be righteous, to be that perfect human, that faithful Israelite, to love the Father with all of his heart, with all his soul, with all his strength. And he just shuts the devil down with a word, the word of God. Jesus knows that when human worship goes wrong, the whole of creation suffers. We learn that through Adam. We learn that through Eve. We learn that through everyone who has followed them. But he also knows when worship goes right, though there will be suffering because the world has been bent, we know that resurrection follows. That, in the words of Paul, the glory to come cannot be compared to the suffering that we experience. Jesus knows this, and so even now, he turns his face away from the devil, face to the Father, and he trusts himself into his hands. It is beautiful. Well, we want to jump into some practical things. What does this mean for us? But I wondered if you had any clarifying questions that you'd like to ask about the story, things I didn't touch on. Anyone? Anything confusing or or you'd like to hear a little more depth on? I offer this because sometimes I, I look at these stories and I think, oh my goodness, how do I make this shorter? Him only. So um, I was wondering um, how that plays out with was Satan really asking him to give him his whole whole um, worship, or was he just asking uh, Jesus to just submit a little? Mm. And sometimes that might be the temptation is to just give in a little. Like a compromise. Yeah, a slight yeah. compromise. Because it says Jesus um, said only at the last thing. And so I think maybe he was he referring to completely staying away from anything that had to do with, with compromise. Right. I mean, I think that would be true, Val. I think in the context, uh, it's, it, th- that, that um, distinction wouldn't even be there. Like what I mean by that is, to, to have given anything would have been to, get, to have given it all. So the quote, worship him only from Deuteronomy 6, is in particular contrast to all the other gods. And, and so they're coming into the land that's surrounded by many other gods being worshipped. Um, and so the, the challenge, the thing that Moses is trying to get them to remember and not forget, is you're going to be tempted to worship all these other gods, and, and you can't mix and match. You've got to worship only the true God. And so um, to have given anything would have been to, given it, to have given it all. Um, so there's, there's challenge in there f- for us. Um, and down through the history, that's been a challenge for followers of Jesus, right? Um, that how, do you, how do you navigate that when there are gods or governments or whatever that are demanding our loyalty in ways that contradict following Jesus, right? 
Um, and so uh, how, how do we navigate that? In this context, the devil's asking for worship, which would have given the entire thing away. So it was compromise, yes, but it would have been to have given everything to him. And Jesus' quote back was, was obviously a direct, a direct dismissal. It was saying there's only one who is worthy of worship, and that's all the way through. Um, and it's him only that we, that we worship and serve. Thanks for that. Other questions or thoughts? And Olin does have a microphone for you, and that's particular for our brothers and sisters who are on- online so that they can hear your words. Cheryl. Yeah, I just wondered if you could comment on where Satan says, uh, uh, I have uh, all the authority uh, for it's been given to me, and I can give it to anybody I want. Mm-hmm. Just wonder if you can comment on that. Yeah, the devil's making a claim that he actually has been given authority over the world. And what's more, it's his, it's his to give to others. There would be different opinions, I think, on whether or not, how truthful that statement was. You know, d- does the devil have some sort of sway or leadership here? Uh, did he then, but doesn't now? There's a number of questions. Um, that, that you'd have a mixture of responses. That, that, and, and we see in the scriptures, the devil referred to as at times, you know, having authority. The God of this world has blinded the hearts of men and women or, or the prince of the power of the air. And you have these references to some kind of you know, principalities and powers as leadership or influence or whatever. Um, but here's the thing. When you take in the whole of scripture, whether or not what he was saying here had an element of truth we, he, we receive it now as people who follow the Messiah who died and rose and is now seated at the right hand of the Father to rule and reign until all enemies are his you know, footstool. Um, we receive that and we just look at that and go, not, a, not today, Satan. You know, not a chance. Um, you're not the rightful owner. You're not, you're not the one with authority. You might think you have authority. We're actually here to inform you that you've lost it. Um, that we, there is a king who's on the throne, who has all power, all authority. And while we don't yet see all things subject to him, right, in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, there's coming a day when it will all be subject to him. And so our role now as followers of Jesus is actually to, to declare the lordship of Christ over all of creation, over all evil, because he has served notice. And, and there, there would be a good argument, I think, theologically to make that at the cross, Jesus destroyed, in 1 John, destroyed the works of the devil and his authority was stripped and he's no longer, he no longer has the power that he perhaps used to have. Um, and instead the rightful King has now been installed. And so our role as we are, as we're praising Jesus, as we're worshiping, but also as we're witnessing, as we're living our lives is we're living out the Lordship of Christ. We're, we're living under new leadership. There is a Lord in heaven and earth. He rules. And whatever governments, whatever principalities and powers are today, they've all been served notice. They are short term. The real king is already on the throne. And so how, we, how, how I receive this, let me just, I'll just tip my hand to you. Um, knowing that there would be difference of opinion among brothers and sisters on this. I look at this and think, yeah, he is bluffing. He doesn't have it. I don't think he has the power. Um, I think he thinks he has the power. I think he's an arrogant liar. And I think what he's confronting is it's, it's kind of the final bluff. He thinks he can do this perhaps, but he has failed to reckon with who he's dealing with. And he's going to go to the cross. And, you know, as we can look at dramatically and think right when the powers of, of hell thought they had won, they lost. It was actually their losing moment and all authority was stripped. And so we, you know, uh, Philippians chapter two, we have the beautiful, uh, you know, in your relationships, like be like Jesus who humbled himself and I'm even to death on a cross, but now he's been exalted to the right hand and, and, and uh, we declare him Lord and Savior over the world. This is what we declare. And we look at this statement by the devil and we think, well, whatever, he's not in charge anymore. How's that for a rambling statement? Joanne. So I was just looking this up, Ephesians one twenty two tells us God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And that's what I hold to. Beautiful, Joanne. Yes, what a great reference, yeah, in Ephesians. And you'll see, um, uh, it's all over the scripture, all over the New Testament writings, but, but Paul in particular, like, he really will take that one and run with it. Like, 
he's like a, a horse with a bit in the mouth, right? And he'll take it, the lordship and authority of Christ. He knows the scriptures. He knows what the Messiah means. And he knows that he's come through suffering and now in glory. And so he's going to run with uh, the power that Jesus has now over all things that would try to destroy God's creation. And our role is to simply declare, well, there is a king. There is a king. Life is still a mess. There is still suffering. But there's a king. He's already won. Redemption's coming, right? Beautiful. Dan. Hey, Tom. If that's true, why does uh, the devil still have the power to tempt us now? Yeah, that's a great question. And so, again, there would be some difference of opinion on this. I think the devil's only power now is in, his, in, his, is in the lie. He doesn't really have any power. The power is in the lie. So if he can get people to, to, to think what is not true of themselves, of God, of the world, then that's where the power lies, which is one of the reasons why the truth sets people free. It's one of the reasons why we're intentionally putting God's word into our minds because the more we're oriented around what God has said and what is true, the, we're not susceptible to the lies of the devil. We're not susceptible to the false I- ideologies. We're not susceptible to the things that damage us and damage each other. We're still overcoming a lot of damage that has been done to the world and us, but it's primarily because people believe lies and then run down the track of destruction. Um, I, I don't believe... I don't believe that it, it's not Star Wars. You know what I mean? It's not like... Now I forgot my Star Wars mythology here. What, what's it? The dark side or the light side as though these, these equal forces that are continually in balance. Nonsense. That's not the story of, of Scripture, the kingdom. Um, darkness does not have the power of the light. It's, it's going to be destroyed. Evil will come to an end. There will come a time when there's no more, you know, no more crying, no more sorrow, no more pain. And in the meantime, we live between what Jesus accomplished on the cross and when all will be raised. So we live between crucifixion, he's rose as the prototype of what's coming, guaranteeing our resurrection. We live in between these times. But we're given the Holy Spirit, down payment of what's to come, all, you know, great stuff. And in the midst of that, part of what is happening is by the work of the Holy Spirit through the church, notice is continuing to be served to the principalities and powers that there's a new king on the throne. And we are giving notice to the devil, actually, or his minions, that they're no longer, they no longer have authority here. This is God's creation. This is under Messiah Christ. And we, we don't give that. So the pushback is against the lies and, and all that flows out of that. But I don't think it's the kind of power that perhaps uh, he had before the cross, if I can put it that way. There's more we could dig into there. But. And having a good theologically rooted understanding of evil and suffering and the devil uh, is important as long as we never lose sight of the lordship of Christ through it all. Yeah. Okay, well, you guys keep talking about that thing. Let's just uh, see what we make of this practically as we move forward. The first thing I think we need to see here is, or respond, I guess you could say, to this story, is that the very first thing is that we honor Jesus for his faithfulness to his Father. We honor him. Do we realize what was actually at stake here in this moment? For Jesus to have chosen this shortcut, everything would have been lost. Not only would creation have been doomed by this one act of idolatry, Jesus himself would have somehow, I mean, it's inconceivable, but I'm just, just roll with it for a moment. Jesus himself would have been cut off. Jesus would have chosen lordship without suffering. And our salvation would have been forfeit. Death would have reigned. We would have been forever lost. In, in some real sense, our lives hung in the balance here, as did the very redemption and restoration of creation. And so even here, as we hear this one story, we're driven to respond to this moment in Jesus' life and his temptation with worship. That we're invited to look at Jesus and just praise him for how faithful he was, how faithful he is how he offered the right worship on our behalf, in our name. He was faithful when all the rest of us would have crumbled. 
He was faithful. And so we look at this and we worship Jesus. We worship the true son, our redeeming savior, our suffering king, who would not be swayed from the road, marked with suffering. He was faithful to his father and he was faithful to us. It's one of the beautiful things about as we are uh, memorizing the scripture together, that's one of the practical challenges we take out of these temptation stories. As we're taking God's word into our hearts and minds, There will be opportunities for us as we hear story after story, passage after passage, where the Holy Spirit would take that very word and will move us into deeper worship. Worshiping Jesus for who he is. And here at this moment, we look at this and we say, thank you, Jesus. We worship you and we praise you and we give you glory and honor because you stood up to the devil on our behalf. You were faithful to the Father when we would not have been. You are faithful on our behalf, and we get gifted with all that Jesus has won. And then second, there's an invitation here to keep following Jesus through our suffering now. Jesus suffered for us. He accomplished salvation for us through his suffering, through his death. He carried our sin and brokenness to the cross. He paid the full price for our rebellion, our disgrace, our shame. Thank you, Jesus, And then he rose again, and then he gave us the Holy Spirit to live in us now and make us new creations, which he is doing day after day after day. And he walks with us, but we all know that we still suffer. Life is very hard. Our bodies are still broken. We still hurt. Relationships are difficult. We live in a world of hurt. As we already touched on, a world that is often bathed in lies that continue to destroy. And all along the way, we are being called to fix our eyes on our suffering but now resurrected Savior, realizing that even in this moment, even when we are groaning and we are suffering and we are experiencing the difficulty of living between his resurrection and ours, that we are able to somehow join Jesus in his suffering. That's how Paul understood it. Join Jesus in his suffering, in this still groaning creation, in our still groaning bodies. And discover, as we read in Romans 8, that the Spirit joins us in that groaning. Which is why I think as Jesus' apprentices, we need to look at this example of Jesus again and ask, how do I follow this? How do I follow you, Jesus? Jesus, you were tempted by a shortcut to glory. We will be too. Jesus, you were promised an easy road by a liar with a God complex. We will be too. Jesus, you were given every opportunity to turn away from the Father's will for your life, and we will be too. And so like Jesus, in those moments when we are tempted to turn or compromise, or forget. We're being called to remain vigilant and attentive and awake and focused, not really to the devil, actually, but to the God who loves us, who has called us his own, who has given us the spirit, who has given us the word. And so we keep following Jesus through the suffering now, knowing that glory is coming. And that's why our practical application for this week remains the exact same as last week. And you should all thank me right now because you don't want the practical thing from last week and then another one this week, do you? No, you don't. (laughs) We started last week with this challenge to begin memorizing scripture because one of the really obvious practical outlays of, of this story was we watched Jesus respond in these moments is that he had put God's word into his heart and mind so that in these moments of conflict, of crisis or compromise or challenge, he was just able to pull it out and defeat the devil with the word of God. And so we need to, as followers of Jesus, and as I said last week, I'll say it again, if you are a follower of Jesus, memorizing scripture should be a part of your spiritual life, no exceptions for anyone whatsoever. We should be memorizing the Bible. Like Jesus, we continue to put God's written word into our mental space, which I think is critical because there's a lot of things that are competing for your mental space. And we need to push some of it out by putting God's word in. 
We need to memorize the scriptures so that our very minds and hearts are being formed and filled with the sustaining true words of God. And as a result of truth invading and and taking up our mental space and our heart space, we'll be able to more quickly identify false promises, stupid shortcuts, things that show up pretty obviously as fake life hacks that try to skirt true change instead of what God wants to do in our lives, in our hearts. By memorizing scripture, we'll be able to see how Jesus gives us courage to face the world as it is, but now under his lordship, how truth will show up the lies. And we can take courage along with Jesus who will lead us through suffering and into glory equipped with God's word, leading us as our resurrected king. And so I just challenge you to keep working on the memorization habit. Now, some of you took home uh, what, I, what I dubbed our, our, our little starter pack here, starter set of 10 scriptures that I think everybody should memorize. Now, I had fun with this because I asked some of you, um, what are your top 10 scriptures that you think everybody should memorize? And guess what? people come up with a different 10. So that's why I changed it from top 10 passages to top to 10 great passages. Because, hey, there's lots. And um, you should have heard Tenille start rattling off all the scriptures she has memorized. When, when I asked her the 10 passages, she gave me about 40. So you can thank me for only giving you 10. Anyway, um, just kidding. I can give you more. And she can too. If you didn't get one of these last week, don't be shy. I want you to take one home. And so the idea would be to take a passage and just start memorizing one per week. And I gave you some tips on how to memorize it. And so I'm going to ask Ken, would you come? And I'm just calling you out today. If you didn't get one last week, you put your hand up. You're not making a commitment. You're not writing it in blood that you're going to somehow memorize these. That's between you and God, but Ken will hand these out. And if, there's, uh, if, if we run out and need some more, I can run some more off later. So we want to keep memorizing scripture. It leads us to true worship. It leads us to see clearly when the road gets tough that there is a God who has shaped us and called us to follow him. And I believe that that will be a critical way that God continues to lead us in the days ahead. As we finish today, and I know that the worship team is going to come and lead us in one more song, but as we finish today here, I'd like to invite you into a beautiful, another beautiful liturgy written by Douglas McKelvey from Every Moment Holy. And I've led one or two of these before, and uh, we've used them at various uh, times. But I want to invite you to stand with me and what I, what I love about um, this liturgy, it's a liturgy of praise to the king of creation. And it's going to be on the screen. And there's going to be parts where I read, and it's a designated leader, and it's not bolded. And then there's going to be parts where all of you read, and it says people, and it'll be bold letters. And I hope we can follow on, along like that. But what I'm inviting you into here is a beautiful liturgy of praise, yes, to the king of creation. But hear it now as us declaring the lordship, the authority, the splendor, all that the Father has promised to Jesus has been given to him because he went to the cross and through the cross into resurrection. And so join with me as we say this beautiful liturgy together. Our thoughts of you, O Lord, have been too small, too few. For seldom have we considered how specific is the exercising of your authority, extending as it does to the mere, into the myriad particulars of creation. And as creation hurdles toward its liberation and redemption, the full implications of your deep lordship are yet to be revealed in countless facets unconsidered. And our thoughts of you, O Lord, have been too small, too few. The old and impotent gods our ancestors once believed in were at their best, but imperfect pictures of you 
whose strength and goodness and creative majesty and wonderful mystery and love exceed those old rumors as sunlight exceeds the tiny dimness of stars reflected in a dark and wavering pool. The fairy tales crafted by our old cultures hinted at you, though they knew it not, yet their perfect princes and blessed ends were yearnings for all that has found fulfillment in you. You are the monarch of meadows, lord of the lava fields, ruler of the desert wastes, the polar king, the rainbow king, the king of the southern cross, and the king of the northern lights. You are the horse lord, the crag king, lord of the bees, king of the walruses, commander of rhinos, lord of the lightning bugs. You are the captain of the clouds, the wolf king, the king of the cockatoos. For your claim over creation is vast, You are the Lord of Antarctica, the King of California, the King of the Scottish Hills, and the King of the Nile. Your dominion unfolds unfolds the earth and rises beyond it to the furthest extremes of the stars. You are Lord of the vast empty spaces. You are the king of the constellations, the black hole king, lord of novas exploding, lord of speeding light, high king of galaxies, king of Orion, king of the moon. You are the God of justice, the God of wisdom, the God of mercy, the God of redemption. All of this is true, but our thoughts of you are still too, too few, for our minds are too small to conceive of them all, let alone to contain them. You are Lord of lords and King of kings. O oh, Jesus Christ, our King of everything. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you feel encouraged and challenged. If you know someone who would benefit from what you have heard today, please share this podcast. For more information, or if you have questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Erickson Covenant Church.